Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into, the, into heaven except he who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Before I pray for us, just a reminder, as we begin this series in John, we're looking at sayings from our Savior, and John carries uh, some unique dialogues um, and sayings from Jesus that no other gospel does. And so we're going to take this, this dialogue with Nicodemus, this conversation with him, and then the next week we'll look at the one in chapter 4 with the lady at the well. Uh, that, that those two stories really go together, and we'll see that hopefully over the next couple of weeks. But then we'll move into the I am statements uh, of Jesus uh, for the rest of the fall. So let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would do a, a miracle, and by miracle, even as we hear your words to Nicodemus, that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would cause us to respond to you in ways that we, we can't or we, we couldn't, we haven't been able to see the sin that's in us that, that needs to be removed in order to see your beauties and the way that you love us more than anything else in this world. And so to that end, and for your glory alone, I pray these things and ask that you be with us, that you open our eyes and our ears, uh, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, I, I read a book called Deep Survival, and this was no, not a primer on uh, pastoral ministry. Uh, this was, thank you for laughing at that. This was um, a book about survival and how our brains function in the midst of crisis. And so it, it had all these different scenarios 
people getting lost, um, life and death situations. And uh, it looked at why some of those people actually made it out alive and why some of those people didn't. And the, how their brain either tricks them or help them uh, in these situations. And one of these, situ- one of these uh, examples they look at um, uh, was uh, dealt with this avalanche that occurred um, in, in Colorado. There were five hikers going through this part of uh, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And two of those hikers were experienced. And as they're going through this, this section of the, of the trail that they're hiking um, out of nowhere and unexpectedly, which is kind of usually how most avalanches happen, an avalanche uh, came down upon them, and sadly, uh, two of the, uh, of the folks uh, died, did not make it out of the avalanche, um, and three were able to survive, two of those three being the experienced hikers. Um, and I think there was one who was with them who wasn't, and they were just nearby and were able to get that person out of the way. And so the book goes into why did these folks survive, and why did these folks not survive? And their conclusion, in my opinion, is pretty fascinating. What they, what they recognized was that those that survived had actually experienced this before. They knew what an avalanche was. Um, they knew what it sounded like. They knew uh, what it was when they saw it, such that their brains uh, had a model for it, could recognize it, and actually know how to respond to get out of the way. The other two folks uh, who did not make it out, though, had never seen it. And, and, and as part of the testimony of what happened that day, the experienced tigers were trying to get their attention, were, were, were telling them to move out of the way, and all these folks could do was stare up at the mountain trying to figure out what this was that was coming at them. They, they couldn't respond. They were paralyzed at, at that. And so the conclusion that this book makes is, is how, in many ways, as we navigate crisis situations— Sometimes our brains help us get out of those situations. Sometimes they don't. There is something in us, actually, that until it is able to see and recognize something, we cannot respond to it appropriately. Well, as we turn to this somewhat familiar conversation that Jesus has with this man uh, called Nicodemus, Jesus tells him that, like those hikers that day, all of us have this problem in us. And you might have heard it in the text. All of us have this problem in us that has left us unresponsive and not to disasters and crisis situations like this, but have left us unresponsive to spiritual issues, spiritual matters. Like our, our, our unresponsiveness is not a physical unresponsiveness, but a spiritual unresponsiveness to what is truly life-giving to God himself. That means we can be religious Right? We can do Christian things. We can come in here as Christians and go to church and be around other believers. But it doesn't mean that we have actually responded to God with our hearts. And this is what Nicodemus shows us. And what Jesus will show us in this text as he speaks to a very religious person is that God must open our eyes to him first. This is what it means to be born again. That he would open our eyes to him first before we are able to believe. And to do that, we requires getting uh, new spiritual hearts or being born again. I don't know if that phrase is, is new to you or foreign to you or if you grew up you know, hearing, have you been born again? But this is where this comes from. And what I want us to see is that when we receive these new hearts, though, this morning, when we, be, when we are, as, as the text says, as Jesus says, born again, we are then able to see Jesus and his grace, and we see our need for his grace, but we also see something else, and this is more John's point this morning, that is, in seeing Jesus, 
we begin to see the love that the Father has for us because we see Jesus. And when we see that love, it, it, it changes our hearts. It moves our hearts from being dead, if you will, to being responsive, to growing, to changing, to following him, that we might truly live as beloved sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And so to that end, I want us to look at, at three things that are, are not printed in your bulletin. I want us to see in this text the need to be born again, or specifically where Jesus says the problem lies. All right, so the need to be born again, or where Jesus says the problem lies in the text I want us to look briefly at what being born again even means. I don't know about you, but again, that, that term gets thrown around a lot. And I want us to see briefly what that means. And then lastly, I, really the purpose of being born again. Why does this matter? Why should I, how should I think about that as a Christian today? So those three things, let's look at that first one there, the need to be born again, though, where Jesus says our problem is. Jesus talks about this need to be born again with Nicodemus, but in chapter 2, as we saw there, which is really kind of where this dialogue begins, verses 24 to 25, Jesus tells us where this problem of ours is. And it's not, it's not outside of us, it's not with other people, it's not with our sisters, it's not with our parents. Rather, the problem, as Jesus says, is what? It's in us. Look at, look at 24 and 25 there of chapter 2. Jesus says he doesn't need anyone to bear witness about man because he knows what's in man. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem, the text says, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man or mankind, for he himself knew what was in mankind. Later, in a more sweeping summary of Jesus' mission in chapter 3 here of verses 19 and 21, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, speaking of himself, and people loved what? The darkness, rather than the light, because their works were evil. See, the first thing that we need to note about what Jesus is saying is that he is making a very universal claim as to our need to be born again. This is a very universal claim. He is not talking about a certain kind of people in this text. He is referencing all of mankind. But second, he is telling us where, and this is probably the most important part of this, where that problem lies, and that is inside us. Jesus knew what was in mankind that made us lovers of darkness and not light. And because this problem is in us then, it is our natural desire to do uh, what is the opposite of what God desires, which is what the Bible's definition of evil actually is. And it's actually important for us to, to talk about that for a second. What, is, what does that mean? What does evil mean? Chances are, if you hear the word evil this morning, you might think of witchcraft. Um, you might think of Ouija boards. I, I don't know. Um, many of us here, probably, when we think of evil, might think of Nazi Germany. On the heels of our uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11, we might think of Al-Qaeda or bin Laden or, or, or anything associated with what happened here. That term gets thrown around a lot. But the bad news for all of us in this room this morning as we look at the word evil in Scripture is that it's actually more general and universal than we might want to believe. The primary definition of this word is used, as Jesus uses it in verse 21, is not some form of witchcraft or sorcery. It means, first, full of labors, annoyances, and hardships, bringing toils, causing pain and trouble. 
The second use, though, which one we might be more commonly familiar with, is of a bad nature or condition. But actually, these two things go together. See, in Scripture, the primary definition harkens back to what? And you might have noted that. It harkens back to Genesis 3, to the curses in the garden as Adam and Eve sin and, and rebel against God and are pushed out with these curses that life is not going to go well for them. Right? There will be uh, frustration in their work, uh, pain in childbirth, labor, annoyances, hardships. Nothing from this point on will be easy and nothing will work as it was supposed to. And this itself will be a curse. Therefore, what is known as evil is anything under the curse or that which was born, what? Out of rebellion of God. Evil is everything then outside of God's will for you. That's a more general, broader definition of evil um, than I was aware of when I came in here this morning. This means things like lying are evil. It is outside of God's will for us. Greed, coveting, so on and so forth. It's more general than we might think. But the second definition of evil pertains to our nature and as a result of our disobedience. Therefore, evil is not just something we do externally. It's what? It's in us. It's in us as a desire to not follow or obey God as Adam and Eve did. When Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he's not saying that everyone at one point in time in their life had done something bad one time. He is saying our nature produces this sin, this evil. We don't naturally want or desire God. We don't respond to him as we should. It's who we are. As verse 6 says in our text this morning, that which is born of flesh is flesh. In other words, our nature only produces our nature. Therefore, our hearts are dead, according to Scripture, and unresponsive to the things of God because of what's in us, as Jesus says. So we need to what? Be born again. We need new hearts in order to see the kingdom, to see Jesus. We need new hearts that will respond to the gospel. This is where the problem lies. And, and this aspect of Christianity, I think, comes in, in many ways, it's, it's, it's unique, uh, more so perhaps today than it ever has been. And I say that because today, in our culture today, right, there's a massive desire to be a better person, right, to do good. And, and that needs to be commended. Right? This is not a, a shaming application, right? Uh, gender, generation uh, Gen Z right, they are characterized as the do-good generation. And we can talk about why that is, and I think that's a great thing. Even go on to the University of Maryland campus, there's an institute, there's a do-good institute that you can be a part of. And if you don't know what that is, you should check that out. My point is this, though, in our efforts to do good, what the Bible is asking us to do is to not forget where the problem truly lies. It's in here. This doesn't mean that we stop doing good. This doesn't mean that we, you know, throw up our hands and say that it's, it's not possible. It just helps us know where to start. Are there problems out there in the greater world? Of course. Do they need to be addressed? Of course. What the Bible says over and over, though, is that the biggest problem, the biggest problem is right here. It's me. We have to start talking about this as a church. We have to start addressing the problem as Christians uh, in our attempts to do good. 
Catholic author G.K. Chesterton famously, in responding to an article in the paper asking what's wrong with the world today, responded with this, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. It's true. Doing good begins with knowing where the problem truly is. Of course, Jesus is talking about a, a greater issue of salvation here, but it all falls under the same heading. When we start seeing the problem in us, we will begin to look for solutions outside of us. And this gets to my second point. This is the need to be born again when our problem true, where our problem truly lies. It's in us, and this has left us unresponsive to God. Next, if we see our need to be born again, what does that mean? Well, hopefully it begins the process of seeing that we need a solution outside of us. And this is exactly why Jesus has this conversation with someone like Nicodemus. Let's move to that second point, what being born again means. Enter Nicodemus. If any one of John's first readers were wondering if this need for rebirth uh, was universal. The fact that John records this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus should end that conversation. Everyone would know at this point that Nicodemus was a religious person. If there's anybody that could do good enough, it was him. And, and, and we see this in verse 1 where we were told that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is really the supreme court, if you will, of the Jewish world back then. They were the ones who knew the law the most. They were the ones who came down on the final decisions about what was right, what was wrong. And, and, and ideally, they were the ones that practiced it as well. This is why Pharisees really didn't believe in the temple. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a need to make sacrifices if you could atone yourself through merit, essentially. And so this is who Jesus is talking with. And Nicodemus comes out to him at night clearly having heard of Jesus, signs or miracles, uh, those types of things that, have, that he's been doing. And he begins to have this dialogue. And what's interesting as this, as this starts is that, that John cuts it off pretty quickly. And so we begin here in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't know if we're missing something in the middle there. I don't know if Jesus was just, you know, tired or maybe he just knew his audience. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet it's that last one. But we're going to cut right to it. I know you are, Nicodemus. And here's the deal. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's a man who, by all accounts, thinks he is in the kingdom. He thinks he is maintaining his place in the kingdom of God. And Jesus hits him with, no, 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 you need to be born again. In other words, you too, Nicodemus, are dead and unresponsive inside, of what, inside to what is truly life-giving. You need rebirth. You need something outside of you to change you. And of course, as we continue, Nicodemus doesn't get this, right? How can this be? How can a person be reborn? He doesn't get it. And this only proves Jesus' point. Verse 5, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, by the Spirit, this means from above. It is, it is a supernatural 
uh, event, and one that must come outside of ourselves. In other words, God must act on us first to open our eyes to him. And this work is like the wind, Jesus says, which, one, as one commentary puts, it's, it's working is incomprehensible. That is, we don't know where or when it's going to come or where it's going to go, but the workings of the Spirit are what known in experience by their fruit, by observing changes, changed lives. Well, so what does it mean then to be born again? To be born again or to have spiritual rebirth is, as theologians call it, the regeneration of the heart. And this works in two ways. This works, uh, one, by opening our eyes to see God, but two, it opens our eyes to see ourselves. And this is Nicodemus' problem. It's not able, he's not able to see himself and to see his true need. And, and Calvin's uh, Institutes and in his first book there, paraphrasing here, of course, he writes, the only way that we know ourselves is by knowing God, right? But only by knowing God can we then, what, know ourselves. In other words, the Bible makes a striking claim here uh, that because of what's in us, not only can we not know God, but without knowing him, we can't truly know ourselves. Does a child, right, know who they are apart from their parents? No. Spiritual rebirth then opens our eyes to see God, which then opens our eyes to know and see ourselves, to see our need, but also who we are, what we are made for, our purpose in life, all of those things. Nicodemus here is hearing Jesus say that he must be born again, and he is only thinking physically as we read through the text. There's a little bit of humor here. He's not thinking spiritually, which makes the case his problem is in him. His solution is outside of him. It's actually talking to him at this very moment. It's Jesus. But Nicodemus is trying to what? Act upon God first. He is trying to produce life from what is spiritually dead. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that you need a new heart first. That's what being reborn is. And this is something spiritual that the Spirit gives you. This is what being born again is. It is spiritual rebirth so that we might see God and his kingdom, that we might see Jesus. I don't know if some of you have seen some of those um, video, um, just not ads, but just the videos of people who are trying on those new glasses that couldn't see color before because they were colorblind, and they put the glasses on and they see color for the first time. If you haven't seen that, go Google that. It's an amazing experience to watch because they, they can't believe it. They take the glasses off, they put them back on, and then they, many of them, they start crying because of what they are now able to see with these new lenses. MIT research shows that colorblindness is often a result of uh, malfunctioning cones that cause wavelengths to overlap even more, resulting in a color discrimination. And so these glasses use a filter, and these this filter cuts out those overlapping wavelengths, allowing for clear distinction, especially between colors red and green. I learned something today about that as I was researching this. Um, what's the point? When the Spirit regenerates us, right, when the Spirit comes in and changes our heart, the Bible refers to it as being able to see. That's what Jesus says. Anyone who is not born again cannot see the kingdom of God. In one sense, being born again acts as a filter that allows for what clear distinction between colors, as it were. And in this case, it opens our eyes to see both Jesus, but it also opens our eyes to see our own need. Who we truly are, a sinner in need of grace, 
to be born again it is to see both. They go together. They go together. Being born again is not just a term used to secure your place in heaven. It's a term that tells us that we are dead and need new life put in us. And that's the solution. And as Christians who perhaps have heard this a thousand times, let it be a reminder to us this morning. That I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. This is what being born again means. And Nicodemus is wrestling with this, as I hope that many of us are wrestling with that, this this morning. How can this be? But for what purpose? What, if this is what being born again means, that God would, would, would and wants to put a filter on my heart so that I could see him and that I could see myself and see my need for him, what's the purpose of this? And, and, and this gets to my final point. We need to be born again not just so that we might have eternal life, which is really the thrust, it feels like, of this passage, that, that those who believe in Jesus may never perish, but what, have eternal life. And that's part of it. That's part of it. But the purpose that I want to press upon you as we leave here this morning, this last point of being born again, is so that we will see Jesus and believe. Because when we see Jesus, we then know what the extent of the, of the love that the Father has for us. When we see Jesus, it's not just security from you know, fire insurance as we talk about it in certain circles. It's not just uh, getting that mansion in the sky. When we see Jesus, we see the love that the Father has for us. And this is John's point. First, Nicodemus must see that Jesus is the culmination of all of God's promises to him. In other words, Jesus is the solution outside of himself that, 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 that is going to bring him salvation, not better law-keeping. And the same is true for us. As the dialogue with Nicodemus continues here in verses 9 to 15, Jesus holds nothing back. And this is something to be noticed about this text that we'll see is different in the one next week in chapter 4. He holds nothing back to Nicodemus, who, who he says, of all people, he should know these things. And why? Because he is a teacher of the law. And he says to him, if I, you know, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then Jesus tells him heavenly things, doesn't he? He still has mercy on him. And part of that conversation, God, he, he, he brings in Numbers 21 here, how God has been leaking this promise all throughout the Old Testament of one to come who will heal, who will save. And he draws on Numbers 21, connecting it to himself. With Moses being lifted up, or sorry, with Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, that for all who looked at the serpent would not be bitten and die from the deadly snakes that had come from, for them in judgment. That is, just as Israel's solution was not within, right? It was what outside of them, looking up, as it were, to the solution. Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, the solution is still the same for you. It's outside of you. It's looking up. It's looking at me. Can you see me, Jesus says here to him, as the solution, the culmination of all of God's promises to you? And I would turn that to us this morning, right? Friends, the telos, or the end of God's mercy, is not golden streets. It is not a mansion in the sky for you. The end of God's mercy is always Jesus. It's always Jesus for you. To see him, and to not just to be saved by him, but to marvel at and to worship him, to rest in him. Nicodemus, friends, doesn't need to be born again, and I would say the same for you. You don't need to be born again so that you can go home tonight and do a better job of keeping the law. Nicodemus needs to be born again so that he uh, can see the one who kept the law perfectly for him. Has that happened to you? And has that caused you to fall down and worship because this grace is so amazing? 
Nicodemus doesn't need to be born again, uh, you know, not so that he'll be convinced enough about his sin that he really begins to shape up and, and fly right, as we say, to walk the line. Instead, Nicodemus needs, to, needs eyes to see the one who knows what's really in his heart, but still goes to the cross for him anyway. Nicodemus needs eyes to see that even on his best day, he still needs Jesus to die for him. And we need those eyes too. Second, when we get those eyes, when we see Jesus, we see the love that the Father has for us. And don't miss that. What happens to Nicodemus and to us when we experience grace, when we see that God dies for us so that we might live, is that we know we are loved. And I'm a firm believer at this point in life that the question behind every question, every fear that we have in this world, the question behind that question, the question that houses all those questions is, am I loved? Am I loved? And here in John 3, Jesus is showing you explicitly yes. The climax of this account is John 16, John 3, 16 and 17, if our response is to live in darkness because of the evil in, in us, God's response is to give us a savior out of his love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. Instead, he sent Jesus so that the world might be saved through him. See, it, it is the measure of the gift here that correlates with the measure of God's love for us. Bruce Milne puts it best when he says, if the depth of love is measured by the value of his gift, then God's love could not be greater. For his love gift is his most precious possession, his only eternally beloved son. Simply put, it is impossible for those in Christ this morning, it is impossible for God to love you more. Do you know that this morning? All the same, it's impossible for him to love you less because of Jesus too. Do you know that this morning? The purpose of being born again is to see Jesus and respond and believe, and I pray that that is something, that, 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 that if that is somebody in this room, that you haven't had that profession, that you would call on the name of Jesus and be saved. But it is also throughout the rest of our lives when we question and we doubt what God is doing in our lives, that he actually does love us, that in our believing in Jesus, we are convinced of the love that the Father has for us because of what he did. For God so loved that he gave. That he gave. This is the purpose of being born again. To see the Father's love for us, a love set on saving the people through faith, not condemning them, a love that is grace-based, not merit-based, a love that never lets us go. Is the purpose for you of being born again that you will get that mansion in the sky? Is, is the purpose of being born again fire insurance for you this morning? And I ask that sincerely, right? As, as, as church people, which most of us in here are, like, why do you come here this morning? Is this, is, it, is this to sort of balance out the things you did this week? Or do you come here because this is the place where you hear over and over that you are loved beyond all measure? Because that's what Jesus is trying to tell you in this text. I'll close with this. I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson's writings, and he died in 2018. If you don't know, Eugene Peterson, just a, a pastor, author, um, great gift to the church. At his funeral, his son Leif had this to say. He said, Eugene Peterson 
his son Leif had this to say. He said he only had one sermon. Um, that he had everyone fooled for 29 years of pastoral ministry, that for all of his books, he only had one message. This is what his son is saying at his father's funeral. It was a secret Leif said his dad had let him in on early in life. It was a message that Leif said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years, words he had snuck into his room to say over him as he slept as a child. And here are these words. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. I imagine the reason this was Eugene Peterson's one sermon, according to his son anyways, was because Eugene Peterson knew that this was God's one message to him in Christ. For what is the cross to us but God's relentless love, his pursuit of us, and his coming after you? God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. This is the purpose of being born again, to know that love. May God's love in Christ then move our hearts to respond as his people to him so that we might truly live as beloved sons and daughters of the Father that we are. And may that love overflow into this world and into our communities and our neighborhood. That it would, it, it would just change our lives, that it would change those around us. It would bring glory to the Father forevermore. That be the case for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would do the work that you say you do, and that is of changing hearts. And I pray for those who have been in the church for a long time that this is not a passage that we have kind of been here and done that and we move on because we do believe in Jesus, but that we stay right here. Because staying here uh, seeing Jesus reminds us over and over of what it is that we need to be reminded of, and that is the Father's love for us. That he truly does love us, that he is coming for us, that he is relentless, that he has, has withheld nothing in order to get us. And may that love be the love that changes us as your people for this church and for the world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, uh, please stand as we sing our hymn of response, hymn number 